1: Today's hot question. Once again, COVID-19 related, and we are going to be talking about this later on in the program as well. Two City of Surrey councillors at this point are calling for the local construction industry to shut down in order to help prevent the spread of COVID-19. So we are asking you today, would you support the shutdown of the construction industry? And you can vote in our hot question of the day on Twitter at CKNW or at Jill Reports. You can vote yes, put the public health first or no know, it will impact the economy. And if you want to call the buzz line and leave your vote there, please do. You can also explain what, uh, how you are voting and why you are voting. And if you are somebody who works in the construction industry, because I know we have been, get, been getting a lot of email from people at various construction sites, so we'd love to hear from you as well. The buzz line number 604-331-BUZZ that is 604-331-2899. Yeah, as you've been hearing in the news, a call from two Surrey City councillors to show shut down the local construction industry in light of the spread of COVID-19. We're hearing that from both Jack Hundile and Brenda Locke, both saying that some construction sites are closed, Others, however, continue to operate. Handal saying to avoid the spread of the coronavirus, every site needs to close for the time being. Both councillors are also calling for an emergency meeting of council, saying that citizens need to be better informed during this time of crisis. Brenda Locke, one of those councillors in Surrey, is joining us on the line now. Councillor Locke, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Joe. Uh, do you know how many, even anecdotally from from being in Surrey or, or hearing from residents, do you know how many construction sites are continuing to operate?
0: I, I don't. I just know that we are a building city that has got many construction sites, but I couldn't tell you the number.
1: Are you hearing from construction workers who are concerned about this?
0: We are. We are. They're, um, they're asking us uh, exactly how to manage themselves, and we've heard from several of them.
1: Uh, so, what would you like to see Council do at this point? Well, I think um, we
0: do need to have an emergency meeting of Council. I think that's absolutely imperative and and after we did that uh, press release, uh, we did get message that we are going to have uh, we are going to have an emergency meeting, but it's going to be closed and uh, while I think that's great, it's nowhere near enough we need we need leadership, and we need to be public facing. We need the public to feel comfortable um, uh, with what city hall is doing.
1: And when you say it's going to be closed, then are councillors actually going to be there, or is it going to be more like the virtual meeting that we saw Vancouver have?
0: Well, it will be a virtual meeting, but it and it will not be um, public facing, so the public will not uh, be able to see it because it's going to be enclosed.
1: But is it in camera in that you won't be able to tell the yes. public about it? Yes, exactly. Doesn't that seem a bit strange, given that what residents of every city, of every municipality right now are looking for uh, from their council, from their elected officials, is guidance and transparency?
0: And that that's my concern. I mean, we need to demonstrate that leadership in Surrey. And uh, we need a public-facing meeting so that the public has a level of comfort that people are handling what needs to be handled during this crisis. Um, like every city, Surrey has an EOC or an emergency operations center, and so I have great confidence in the people that are on that. But we need to demonstrate that. We need to show that to the public.
1: And you're also calling for, for the meeting to, to inform residents. Uh, what about the, the, the fact about funding or, uh, or changing things in light of this? Do you know, is that even going to be discussed at this emergency meeting? Well, I think there's, uh, you know, I haven't seen the agenda yet, but
0: I, um, and I hope that we get that agenda shortly. But I certainly do believe that uh, we have to stop all our major projects right now. Um, we, you know, we are to continue on with them. We are only going to be taking away from the city. So we have, uh, we have to give the emergency
1: ops center everything we can, including all our,
0: all the dollars we can.
1: When you talk about construction sites, so right now then, uh, some of the sites are closed. So is it up to the individual companies at this point, if they want to close their sites or if they feel they can follow the rules of distancing and keep them open? They can. They, you know, um, Dr. Bonnie Henry
0: has been very clear about uh, the distancing. It's not, it's sort of easier said than done on some of the construction sites, and that's what we're hearing back from uh, people that are working in construction. So the reality of their workplace is sometimes not that cut and dried.
1: Right, and if council then council could pass uh, something like, or, or actually, could they? Because would you have to? Would you need the province then to come in and say non-essential businesses now have to close down, or could your council? Would it have the power to go out and say you need to close? We. Um we would have to go to the, unlike
0: Vancouver. Um, we don't have our own charter, so we don't have the ability, and we don't have um, we don't have the ability to do those kinds of things, as as I understand it. That is a provincial directive.
1: Right. So if council or when council meets, but you do have the power then if you wanted to, to uh, vote on something to change, say, funding models or to, discon- to, to, put, to postpone one project saying we need to postpone this and focus more on stopping the spread of this virus. Right.
0: And I think um, we should all be focused. Every one of us at City Hall should be focused. And that includes... Some of the larger projects that we're doing in City Hall, including the police transition, which is a very expensive pre- um, proposition for the city. So all monies should be focused, all resources should be focused 100% on dealing with the crisis and, and post the economic recovery. So we need to, uh, we really need to be entirely focused singularly and only on the crisis before us.
1: Yeah, have there been any discussions that you know of between councillors and the mayor about the the police transition and if that there's the possibility of that being postponed while we deal with this? No, there hasn't been any, but I
0: can tell you that certainly I and and uh, Councillor Hundle have have communicated to Minister Farnworth that um, uh, anything moving forward on the police transition should be stopped till we get through this. Um, it's uh, it's just. Too much of a too much of a drain on our finances right now to uh, continually move forward on this.
1: And did you get a response from Mike Farnworth on that? No, not yet. Uh, so, when is council going to be meeting for this uh, emergency meeting? Uh, that's today, later today. And so, being an in-camera meeting, then what will you be able to tell people about it? Well. Basically,
0: that it's an in camera meeting, and that's the limit of it. Uh, we can't uh, talk about what's going to be in the meeting, and at this point, I don't know what's going to be in the meeting. So,
1: Will you and Councillor Hundile continue to call for a public uh, or a public accessible meeting, even though it would obviously be a virtual meeting? It wouldn't be one <coughs> that encouraged people to come to City Hall, but a meeting where the public would be able at least to watch what's happening? I think it's imperative. I think it's imperative that we have a
0: public facing meeting. And even if all we can get out is the minutes of that meeting or um, the content of the meeting uh, because they will be all virtual um, that would at least be something we could talk about with the public. And I think it's important right now because um, for the most part Surrey citizens have been excellent. They have been staying home. Our streets are pretty quiet. Um, we just closed our playgrounds yesterday, which I believe was late, but um, we are starting to see people are really adhering to the uh, distancing rules the best they can. There's always those flare-ups, just like in every community where people are having parties, but for the most part, Surrey residents are doing an awesome job.
1: All right. Well, that is uh, good to hear. And, uh, Councillor, looking forward to any more information uh, you're able to give us. Do you know what time the meeting is taking place today? It's uh, five o'clock today. All right. Uh, Councillor Locke, thank you so much. Appreciate uh, you taking the time with us. Thank you, Jill. Now, we are taking a look at what is deemed an essential service. And as you know, in Ontario, all non-essential businesses were ordered closed, but some were questioning the list of essential services. And from province to province, it really does vary. In Ontario, for example, essential service businesses include grocery stores, supermarkets, convenience stores, similar type markets, any store that sells human or pet food is deemed essential. Uh, Beer, wine, and liquor stores Stores, as well as alcohol producers, as well as cannabis stores and cannabis producers, will remain open in that province, along with gas stations, pharmacies, restaurant takeout facilities, and food delivery services. And the list goes on, but that's just part of what is deemed essential under that order for non essential businesses to shut down. So the one I think that people were questioning or asking for a bit more clarification was alcohol sales and cannabis sales. Uh, Let's bring in Stephanie Smith, president of the BCGEU. here in this province. Stephanie, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Jill, for having me. Uh, I know there are some concerns with BC liquor store uh, employees in BC. What are you hearing uh, from the members that are still working in those stores? Well, <laughs> I mean, we hear from our members
2: in the liquor distribution branch uh, pretty much every day. Um, you know, and again, opinions, uh, when you have this many members, they they can vary. Uh, we do hear from those that understand uh, the Ontario Health Officer uh, saying that, you know, liquor stores are necessary in terms of implications for people with dependency. But what we're really hearing is just concerns about how these workers are going to be kept safe Um so those are the questions that we're working with the employer to deal with.
1: Are uh, workers at this point at the BC liquor stores are they are they still taking empties? No, that program has been suspended.
2: That was one of the first concerns that was raised to us by our members. And uh, we brought that concern to the employer, uh, the LDB, as well as to government. And the decision
1: was made to suspend that program for the, for the time being. And and what about the physical distance then between a cashier at a liquor store and, and when somebody's going through the till? Has anything changed there to make sure that physical six feet or uh, two meters is maintained?
2: Yeah, and that has been really one of the challenges. Um, you know, and, and I guess, you know, my my message to uh, the general public in this is, um, you know, the provincial health officer has been making uh, level-headed and and uh, considered decisions on which uh, services are remaining and which are not, but it's reliant upon people uh, actually adhering to those directions of social distancing, of um, numbering the number of people in, or, or limiting The number of people in a store. And if people want these services to remain, they are in a large part responsible. They need to respect that social distancing. We have raised that as a concern again with the employer. Uh, We had a conference call with them just yesterday, and I believe uh, that this week we are going to start seeing a a rollout of some barrier that will, uh, you know, provide some safety for our members behind the tills. um, And we're going to continue to push other safety concerns uh, and work with the employer to address them as they come up.
1: And would you agree that it is an essential service? Well, I I just have to say as a labor
2: leader, the term essential means something very different for us in terms of labor relations. I mean, this this is a process that we negotiate when we're talking about job action. Um, I prefer at this point to look at core services Mm -hmm. and the BCGU represents tens of thousands of members who provide frontline core services who don't have the uh, option of working from home. Um, You know, we're looking at in Issue day this week with our members in the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction. We have, um, you know, corrections officers, sheriffs. uh, I mean, the list is so long of BCGU members that are providing really vital core services. And again, We're just asking um, employers to work with us to address their safety concerns. You know, these are people who have families. Uh, This is something we've never, ever dealt with before. And we're all learning as we go. And, um, you know, our our union is on it. Uh, We meet every day to discuss members' concerns. And by meet, I mean virtually. uh, To then decide what actions we need to take, who we need to reach out to, to get answers to the questions were being
1: asked. Right, and and we're focusing uh, right now on liquor stores, but uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, that uh, we're talking about workers in in many, many areas where it's, like you said, not possible to work from home and in many cases difficult to be a physical distance from someone. Um, There are, I've been hearing from people uh, anecdotally, uh, hearing from people saying that at some of the private stores, uh, they've noticed in some cases the stores are locked, they let one person in at a time, you can't touch anything, the employee gets what you want, then you stand behind a piece of tape on the ground and you can tap your card. But they're doing that all exactly for that reason. If they want to stay open, they're saying they need to take these measures. Uh, do you see uh, the uh, public liquor stores taking measures like that or perhaps in the future?
2: Well, again, uh, we monitor, we're monitor. we monitoring very, very closely. I, I think you are going to start seeing signage in stores that um, ask questions Customers, when possible, to use their cards uh, again. Maintaining distance. I mean, I when I have ventured out to like my local pharmacy, for example, um, I'm seeing sticker face. Stickers asking people to line up on those. Um, we are asking um, stores to start looking at limiting the number of customers who come in. Uh, again, the the way that will be practically applied, we're working with the employer on how to do that. So we're in daily contact uh, with the employer and and trying to work out measures that make sense for our members. Um, and again, uh, we're asking you know, the the shopping public to please cooperate with us. The stores are not scheduled for closure. We don't need panic buying. Um, Don't bring a crew in with you when you're shopping. Come in by yourself. Um, Respect social distancing. And uh, let's really work together to get through this.
1: And and I'm glad you brought that up because there have been uh, some comments or conversations about supply as well. Is there any concern with supply? Not at this point. Um,
2: you know, I, I watched what happened in PEI, for example, when they gave two hours notice that the stores were going to be closing and just the the chaos that it created. Uh, we're not hearing any concerns in terms of supply. Uh, part of the reason why, in fact, we limited the, the store hours was to allow us to restock because, um, you know, again, panic buying is making it very challenging for staff. They can't keep up with restocking. And we also need an opportunity, you know, to do the appropriate cleaning uh, within the stores. And so, uh, again, people can really help us out by, by just being, I guess, calm is never the <laughs> thing to ask when there's crisis, but measured, being measured and, and thinking about what is their immediate need and um,
1: how can I, you know, help continue to support these workers. All right. A good message. Stephanie Smith, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We have been talking about construction and the construction industry. It's actually our hot question of the day, given that at least two Surrey city councillors would like to see all construction projects in that city closed while we stop the spread of COVID-19. And we've had a few people call in. Thank you for that. We'll probably have time later on in the show to take more of your calls. Right now, though, we're going to check in with David Algra with Algra Brothers, a spokesperson with this company, a based in Abbotsford construction company that has already made the decision to voluntarily shut down to help stop the spread of COVID-19. David Elgra, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, so what led, and I understand as of yesterday, the shutdown was in place. What was it that that led for your, to your company taking that step and shutting things down?
3: Yeah, my brothers and I, we've been obviously watching COVID and uh, watching what's happening in the world, along with everybody else. And... Um, The social distancing program that the government's asking us all to follow, we just don't feel that it can be uh, managed properly on our job sites. So we made the decision to close down to make sure that all all of our staff are able to socially distance themselves for the next few weeks.
1: And how many people did you have to tell don't come to work for the time being?
3: Um, On a given day, we probably have between 60 and 90 people on on our two sites that we're running right now. So yeah, I think we had about um, probably almost 25 um, direct employees and then another 50 or 60 trades people.
1: What kind of a response did you get when you told the, the employees uh, that you were closing down?
3: Yeah, so our employees, um, they obviously all, all understood. I think uh, the there was a lot of relief from our subtrades. I think there's a lot of companies out there right now that are pressuring subtrades to show up to job sites and continue working. And I, I would say more than 50% of our subtrades were, were relieved when we shut down, so they no longer had to come to the site.
1: Right. What kind of a financial hit are you anticipating, though, uh, for your company?
3: Yeah, that's uh, that's something that It's really hard to determine. I mean, obviously, everything gets delayed and everything gets uh, pushed late. And we have interest costs, obviously, on all of our sites. And we don't know how this is going to affect closing. So the financial impact will be significant. But I also think that if we all could get together and uh, be responsible and practice social distancing and isolation and have proper testing done, that we'll get through this faster rather than trying to work through it and having a bigger problem later on.
1: Is it frustrating to you that other construction sites are continuing to to keep their sites open and are working likely in very similar conditions where they can't be six feet apart and maybe don't have the hand-washing facilities and that to to maintain safety?
3: Yeah, so last week we were paying very close attention to the uh, recommendations and regulations that the provincial government was sending out. And I, I don't think you can fault people for you know, paying attention to that and following what the government's telling them to do. But we're definitely frustrated with what the government is telling construction companies, um, what is acceptable behavior. The last uh, set of recommendations and rules we saw, the recommendation is not more than four people in an in an elevator at one time, which is one thing in, in the regulations. And there's things like that. It's, it's apparent that um, they're putting workers at risk. And I think the government needs to step up and and um, be smart about what they're recommending construction companies to do.
1: Do you think the government should order them all to close?
3: Um, I can't speak for everybody's site. I know that our sites and how what we were constructing and where we were at in our construction processes on our sites. It was not possible for us to have all of our staff and workers practice proper social distancing. If there's companies that do have sites where they can be in 100% compliance, perhaps they should stay open if that's what they want to do. But the sites that can't um, provide 100% compliance with social distancing, I believe they should shut. Yes.
1: Um, a couple of people emailed after listening to this earlier in the show, saying, "Isn't it WorkSafe BC that should be monitoring this?" I, I mean, it's my understanding that WorkSafe BC mainly is reactive when something has happened, and they're not going around, uh, nor nor would they have the staff to go around and physically inspect every site. But do you think WorkSafe BC does have a role here?
3: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know exactly. I think. WorkSafe BC has a set of regulations that they're versed in and um, that they follow. I don't know how they're reacting if they're making up new legislation or new regulations that WorkSafe can enforce, but um, I do know for a fact that uh, we've been getting the emails from the provincial government um, weekly or daily last week, sorry, um, that was explaining all the different regulations that we should be following and doing, and I think that um, the provincial government should step up in that fashion. Yeah, uh,
1: right. Because because that was one of the questions too. Is uh, a construction site building a new a new site maybe might not be deemed essential, but a plumbing a plumber might be deemed essential. In that, if people are in lockdown and and have their pipes burst or something goes wrong, they need to get that fixed. Uh, that's not livable. So it does seem like there are different for the trades, especially that there, there would be different guidelines.
3: Yeah, 100%. I think the um, service-based tradespeople, electricians, plumbers, people that are in that business where they're providing service calls, I think would probably be deemed essential. I just, the new construction that we're building right now, I don't think we felt was an essential business.
1: Uh, Will you apply then to government for uh, compensation or have you encouraged uh, the staff members, the employees to do that?
3: Yeah, the difficult part is we don't know when it will end. So, uh, all of our salaried staff, yeah, we we provided them with ROEs and um, encouraged them to sign up for employment insurance um, just in case we do have to remain closed for months and not weeks. Uh, if it is a matter of weeks and we're able to get back to work in two or three weeks, then uh, uh, we won't be needing government assistance
1: all right. Well, David, we'll be watching uh, and to see what happens with other companies and what uh, government measures are taken in the days to come. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Yeah,
3: yeah you're welcome.
1: Stay safe. Mario Conseco with Research Co has done a new poll uh, that looks at how Canadians are satisfied or not with how all levels of government are dealing with COVID-19. And Mario joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. I was thinking, you know, you have the perfect job for when we're in this unprecedented situation where people are being told (laughs) to stay home because you do the stuff online. People are captive working from home or self-isolating at home. What better way to spend your time than, than filling out one of these polls?
4: You know, response rates have been uh, remarkably high over the past uh, week and a half. Mm -hmm. And I'm definitely thankful that uh, to do my job, I no longer have to knock on people's doors like my forefathers 20, 30 years ago.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Small silver linings there. Uh, So you asked people about the different levels of government, how they are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. What did you find out?
4: Well, there's definitely a high level of satisfaction with the federal government across the country. 66% of Canadians say they are satisfied with how they have handled the COVID-19 outbreak. A little bit higher among Canadians aged 55 and over at 73%, but it's also majorities of those aged 35 to 54 and also those aged 18 to 34 who are happy with how the government has been handling this. Now, For a little bit of a a context, there are other countries where the numbers aren't this high. We look at the United States and the number of those who are satisfied with their federal government is somewhere between 50 and 60 percent, other countries lower than that. So what is quite fascinating to me looking into this is whenever you have an issue that is essentially political, you have a lot of people who voted for the opposition parties who aren't particularly kind to the government that is making decisions, but this isn't the case here. Uh, If you voted Liberal, if you voted for the NDP or the Conservatives, you are likely to say that you are pleased with how the federal government has been handling things.
1: Uh, And interesting, we should mention too, this poll was obviously done before we saw the House of Commons resume in a very strange way today, uh, before uh, the fallout, the controversy over the, the sweeping measures that the current government was looking for?
4: Yeah, definitely. We were in field uh, March 21 and March twenty second, So we have a little bit of time. And I think there will be opportunities to uh, continue to gauge how Canadians feel about uh, their own levels of government as this progresses. You know, if we were asking tonight, then maybe the numbers would be different. But uh, that's why we do it.
1: And the age breakdown as well, not a huge surprise there because many of your polls, so we do see a difference of opinion based on age group. But That's a pretty high percentage rate, though, 73% of Canadians aged 55 and over, uh, saying they have a positive view of the federal government's response.
4: Yeah, definitely higher with the over 55 demographic, uh, especially when you factor in a couple of things that are important Uh, to remember when we're looking at these numbers. It's a group that is consistently voting more for conservative candidates in the country, and it's not something that is related to a specific region Uh, being happier, if you will, with the way the federal government has been handling things. We we usually have a situation, and I think we saw that consistently whenever we asked about energy projects, for instance, where Albertans were more likely to be upset with certain decisions, Quebecers were more likely to be happy with them. Right now, it's essentially uniform across the country, uh, more than uh, six in ten Canadians saying that the federal government is handling this well.
1: Uh, you also asked about provincial governments, and again, it's to, it's a cross section of people, a difference uh, on, on how provincial governments have handled the current situation. Uh, but it is very different when you go from province to province as to what's been implemented so far.
4: Yeah, there's a little bit of a change here, and, and more than anything, this is driven by Quebec. Eighty-four percent of Quebecers are happy with with the way their own government has been handling this file. Uh, BC is a distant second at 69%, but still pretty high when you consider the circumstances. Uh, we are coming off a very polarizing election where essentially half of the people voted for a party and the other half for the other, and you still have 69% of BC residents saying that they're happy with the way Victoria has been handling this. Uh, the numbers are over 60% for every single region of the country, so it's, it's quite uniform here, except in the case of Quebec, where it's 84%, you know, whatever decisions we're taking in the early stages by François Legault, uh, they definitely have been working and there's a lot of people who are happy with how he's handled this. Yeah,
1: and interesting BC had the second highest number of approval for the provincial
4: government. Yes, very high at 69% uh, you know, once again I think we look into this as an issue where specific decision taken by the government uh, if the NDP is the one that is in charge in Victoria, you have a lot of busy liberals who are dissatisfied with some decisions. But I think we can safely say that there's a, a situation here where politics has taken a backseat. You know, there will be plenty of opportunities to try to choose who will be the next government or, or to have specific issues where there will be differences. But right now, I think we see a lot of people, not only here in BC but across the country who seem to be very satisfied with the way things are going as far as the COVID-19 reaction.
1: I wonder, though, that number, I wonder if it's so high, because when people are asked about the provincial government's response, a lot of people, I would imagine, are thinking of Dr. Bonnie Henry and equating those two and saying, yes, I absolutely like what she's done. She's been such a great leader on this front, if that's what's leading or pushing those high numbers.
4: It is definitely part of it. You know, we have seen uh, very uh, a positive reactions to the health authorities, particularly here in BC and in Alberta, in Toronto as well. Uh, so that definitely plays a role into the way people are looking at the uh, at the issue right now, uh, it would be definitely different if this was handled completely by elected politicians. So something to check in the next one, I guess. Mm.
1: Uh, You also asked people about wet markets, and this has come up uh, several times. There have been many conversations about whether uh, there should be an international ban on wet markets uh, selling live animals for human consumption. What was the response there?
4: Uh, pretty overwhelming. I didn't expect the numbers to be as high as they are. Sixty eight percent of Canadians who want governments around the world to implement a ban on wet markets. This is essentially not allowing people to sell live animals for human consumption. We know that SARS originated in a wet market back in 2003. And all signs at this moment point to a wet market in Wuhan as the origin of COVID-19. So it's not something that we can solve by having some sort of municipal or local or Canada-wide legislation. This is something that is going to take uh, every government around the world to try to do something about it. And at this stage, two-thirds of Canadians believe that that's the right way to go.
1: And also believe, uh, when asked if they believe that the the government in China should take full responsibility for this.
4: Yes, 66% of Canadians uh, believe that there should be some responsibility from the People's Republic of China for its role in the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, this one was also quite eye-catching because it doesn't matter if you're a conservative, a liberal, or a new Democrat. Uh, majorities of those who voted for for any of those three parties believe that this should be the case. Uh, it's not a situation that is going to happen anytime soon. I think there'll be a lot of waiting, and obviously we need to get through this first. Uh, but there's definitely the animosity that sometimes happens when you have a situation like this that is affecting your daily life, is not being seen within canadian politicians but more than anything with the way in which uh, china handled this crisis from the start
1: and uh, one other question uh, before i let you go because uh, the uh, president of the united states has been criticized for calling it the chinese virus you asked people what they think or whether or not they think that's acceptable
4: there is a big difference here three in five canadians think it is not acceptable to refer to COVID-19 as a Chinese virus or the Chinese flu. We've seen some social media posts that mention this. Uh, and it's definitely something that people don't want to see happening. I think what I see right now from Canadians is they're establishing a clear difference between who might be responsible for this, and it's a government. It's not an ethnicity, so hopefully these types of mentions will stop. Uh, There's nothing we can do to control the dweller of the White House at this stage, but hopefully we can eliminate some of these words when it comes to the way Canadians look at this crisis.
1: All right, we will leave it there. Mario, thanks so much for your time. Always appreciate it. My pleasure, Jill. Let's shift our focus to Ottawa and the House of Commons. And joining me on the line to talk about what is happening with the uh, emergency legislation is David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. David, thanks so much.
5: Hey, no problem, Jill. Yeah, a bit of a, I mean, it's a bit of strange days anyways in terms of what we're all doing, but uh, even stranger events today in Ottawa, and you you know, I'm sure you've told your listeners, we were supposed to have about 32 MPs, come to Ottawa today and, you know, break all the rules of procedure in order to quickly pass some legislation that was telegraphed to be all about getting billions of dollars in economic relief, enhanced child benefits, enhanced EI benefits, getting that all through and making it law. And instead, we are bogged down right now because the government was, in addition to presenting those uh, bits of uh, that kind of package, also wanted to establish measures for the future that would give ministers the powers to spend money, for example, pretty much on an unlimited basis without any parliamentary oversight or accountability. And that has really got all the opposition parties, all of them, uh, the NDP, the Conservatives, the Bloc, they're a bit anxious and nervous about that. All of them are saying to the government, uh, guys, just let's vote on the economic relief package. If you think you need some other powers, then let's deal with that separately. Those negotiations have been going on for three hours since about noon Eastern time when the House quote suspended for uh, business two minutes after it opened up for business. And, uh, we're waiting to see if the opposition and government can, can get something done. Uh, the key thing here is under the rules, it's, it's not s- simple majority sort of rules here. It's not, even though the opposition have combined more votes in the House than the Liberals, they're operating under rules where unanimous consent is required for this legislation to go through, okay? Mm-hmm. So just one MP, just one, can block this $57 billion relief package. And there was an MP in the House at the beginning of the day that was ready to do that, and that was a guy named Scott Reed. Scott Reed is an Eastern Ontario MP. He's an original founding member of the Reform and Alliance. He's been around here for a long time. And his objection was... He was not going to give consent to a bill he had not seen, and that's true. MPs had not seen a lot of the provisions that they were going to about to be asked to vote on, and as it turns out, some of those provisions include some very big power grabs by ministers. Scott Reid, I just got off the phone with him, Jill, just before we got on air. He's sitting in the House of Commons, waiting for things to resume. He is now convinced that his own party is working on, is in agreement, and is working towards the same goal. So he's confident he'll be seeing something he can vote for. But that's the kind of weird environment we were in here where one MP, you know, on principle, and and some would say, I've been watching the Twitter feed, some say a very good principle, others just giving him the gears, You, you can't make me vote for something and approve something I haven't seen Anyways, that's where we're at, Jill. How's your day? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And we've all been watching that, and I was following along uh, with the uh, back and forth on Twitter as well. They had to know that there was going to be pushback, that not everybody was going to sign away uh, and say yes for the next 21 months. You can tax, you can spend, you can do whatever you want with no accountability.
5: They must have known uh, you know, midday yesterday. So as far as we can tell, the government circulated a draft piece of legislation to the opposition critics, only the critics, not to every MP, uh, just to the critics involved yesterday afternoon. And certainly the critics, you know, presumably within minutes would have told the government, this is not going to fly. Um, and then uh, the government seemed prepared to proceed and it gets in the news and away we go. The prime minister did withdraw or said that he was ready to withdraw a section which would have given the prime minister, the, or sorry, the finance minister, the power to raise taxes, lower taxes, uh, change tax law, Without parliamentary approval, and he'd have that power till December 2021. And, uh, every opposition party said that is a non-starter. Um, and so that was withdrawn. But does it, there's still some other, other measures in the proposed legislation that also give a lot of power to the minister at the expense of parliament. And I guess here's the thing, Jill, is, is lifting our head up a little bit from process and parliamentary procedure is, I think there'd be broad agreement among all Canadians, let alone parliamentarians, that the federal government ought to have some extraordinary powers right now to spend money uh, as it needs to, to do what it needs to do to to deal with this. And you know what? In 1988, parliamentarians, you know, they conceived of a situation like that. And they wrote what was called the Emergencies Act. Now, if the federal government uh, invoked the Emergencies Act, just as B.C. and every other province have done, they've invoked their Provincial Emergencies Act, If the federal government invoked the Emergencies Act, they'd be able to spend whatever money they needed to. But the Emergencies Act, in the careful consideration of the parliamentarians in 88, has some built-in parliamentary oversight. Basically, the government would have to come back to the House of Commons every 90 days just to make sure that parliamentarians could vote on extending uh, emergency powers and reviewing what was spent. That's the Emergencies Act. The current legislation that is causing the problem right now removes a lot of that parliamentary oversight that automatic 90 days you got to come back and tell us what you're doing and again that's where the opposition says that that's not appropriate let's vote on the economic relief you've announced and if you need something else let's talk about that
1: all right well david i know it's been a strange day for you and many others following along we will continue to wait and watch for the word to come from you but thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us appreciate it
5: no problem jill cheers
1: earlier this we actually no, I guess it was last week. The days are all blending together. Last week we were chatting with Kyla Lee. She's a lawyer with Acumen Law. We are usually talking to her about legal matters, but we were talking to her where she is self-quarantined because she is a presumptive case of COVID-19 and something she said during that interview got me thinking about uh, what other people are probably quite worried about. She talked about taking her dog for a walk in her yard and I remember thinking, isn't that great that she's able to access the outdoor space and even though she she's quarantined and she's sick, she is able to let her dog out and that's at least taken care of. It's not a huge uh, concern. She doesn't have to do anything else really about that. What about people, though, that might find themselves in a similar situation without the outdoor space or without the ability to go and get pet food? What are the rights and that of pet owners who are concerned about this? Well, let's bring in Rebecca Breder with Breder Law. Uh, She's an animal rights lawyer and joins us on the line. Rebecca, thanks for coming back on the show.
6: Hi, Jill. Nice to be here. And you know what, can I just say something before we jump into into this segment? I really have to give a shout out to you guys, to you, Jill, to CKNW producers, to the reporters, to the tech guys, to the hosts. You really are doing an amazing job reporting on all of this and giving us your your updates and opinions. And we're, we're often thanking the medical people and as they should be thanked, but you guys just deserve a,
1: a big hand of applause. So I'm just putting it out there. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very, very much. <laughs> um, let's talk about this because it is something that's not front and center, I think, for a lot of people, but certainly would be for anybody that has animals and is concerned about what might happen as this virus spreads.
6: Yes, I, I know. It's so, Thanks so much for thinking about this, because I really like the one thing I find missing in discussions generally like amongst people is what are we doing about pets like and not just companion animals but farmed animals I think animals have to be part of the discussion around COVID-19 for sure and I've heard really concerning comments and some things that people are thinking or what they've been told about uh, dogs specifically but other animals too but let's say dogs specifically how they're not allowed walking their dogs, what if they're quarantined, like what can they do? So let me just start off by saying that uh, we have to listen first and foremost to the health authorities. What are they saying? What can we do? What is the status of everything? And right now what we do know, um, the direction that we're getting from NBC from health authorities is that if you're fine, if you aren't showing any symptoms, you're free to walk your dog outside as long as you abide strictly by social distancing protocols. So I echo that completely. Go out, walk your dog if you're not showing symptoms. Of course, be smart about it. This isn't a carte blanche to have, you know, irresponsible behaviour out there. But if you're not showing symptoms, please go ahead and walk your dog, not just for yourself, but for your dogs too. Again, while also... Uh, keeping in mind and really being strict about social distancing. Now the tricky part is what happens to those people who are who have been diagnosed with COVID 19 or are presumptively positive. Um so they haven't been tested but the health authorities think that that it sounds like you do have it. What are your rights then? And unfortunately in this situation we have not received any direction from the BC government or the health authorities specifically about what to do with our dogs. And fundamentally, it comes down to we cannot, we as dog owners um, and and the government itself cannot allow, it is illegal, never mind cannot, it is illegal to allow an animal to go into distress. And so that would include, if, if your animal has to go out to pee, you have to take out your animal to pee. But what does that mean? So imagine if you live in a condo um, and and you're diagnosed with COVID 19. I would suggest the very first thing you need to do is try to exhaust all of your options. So for one, I really encourage people to go and um, not to go out. Sorry, to order online pee pads. Try pee pads first in the condo. It may take some retraining. Try getting pee pads and get your dog to pee on the pee pads, just like a puppy would. Uh, next, ask a neighbor or a friend to, uh, like if the pee pads don't work, ask the neighbor and friend to take out your dog for a walk. Make sure that you disinfect the leash. Um, ideally, I mean, this is going to be hard for people to do, but if there's an extra leash on hand, uh, use that, uh, give the dog walker, your neighbor or friend the, the new leash so that they can walk the dog. And like basically exhaust your options before you uh, who has been diagnosed with COVID-19 or you're presumptively positive exhaust all of your options before you go out. Now, if for, and I think this will be rare. And again, uh, I really don't want this to be taken out of context and for people to think, okay, well, I could go out, walk my dog, even though I have symptoms or been diagnosed. No, if really, and this would be really rare, I think that if, people have absolutely no option and they live in a condo with no access to the outdoors, then I think it it would be illegal to not allow people to go out and walk their dogs. Now, so my suggestion is, is, first of all, call health authorities to see what they tell you they can do. But secondly, if you have absolutely no choice, Make sure that you are abiding by the social distancing protocols as strictly as you can. Take your dog out for a very brief um, walk, but very brief so that the dog can relieve him or herself and then come right back in. I really don't see any other choice right now. Uh, Hopefully, the government is going to give us some direction and that this is going to encourage discussion about and some serious consideration about those People and, and I think it will be rare who have absolutely no choice but to go out themselves and and walk their dogs. Abs- we have to do something about it.
1: Absolutely, and like you said, hopefully that is a very rare situation. Because my concern would also be that somebody might be afraid to call and even ask for that advice for fear that their animal might be seized.
6: Well, yeah, and and you know what? That's um, that's a good point because not to not to you know scare people, but. Um, the legislation, we are it legally in a state of emergency in British Columbia, and technically what that means, it's right in there in the legislation, it does give the government the right to limit travel, which would include walking dogs, and it does give the right to government to seize animals if they think that they need to, so long as the animals are properly cared for. But again, the bottom line is that the government also has to keep in mind that it is illegal to cause an animal to go in distress. The government cannot be uh, prohibiting people, those rare people who have no choice but to let their dog out to relieve themselves from doing so. They they can't. Now, of course, uh, we're going to see how all of this unfolds. Um, I also wrote on behalf of the Canadian Bar Association, our animal law section executive, yesterday to uh, different levels of government asking them to consider uh, veterinary clinics and pet food supply at stores as essential services in their emergency planning. We have to be thinking about our companion animals as well. That There's absolutely... They just have to be part of this conversation,
1: and they are. I think, and again, it's a bit of a patchwork when you go province to province, looking at what's been deemed essential. But in Ontario, where they ordered non-essential businesses to close, uh, the pet stores, mm-hmm. pet food stores, were included in essential, and that they were staying open. Yes. So that's that's. I would think I would I would be surprised if BC did if BC went to that level if they did something different.
6: Yeah, I know. I think so too. And I, I think Quebec uh, um, included veterinary clinics and pet food and, and supply services as part of their essential services, too. So I, I would. I mean, really, I would be surprised if BC didn't. But sometimes, you know, you have to nudge the government and just say, hey, just don't forget about this issue. Uh, I would be surprised if they didn't include it. I really would. I am hopeful. All of a sudden, I am hopeful that the government realizes it's 2020, people care about animals <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and that they'll consider... Uh, them as part of their emergency planning.
1: Uh, One quick question before I let you go just because I had a listener ask me this and I didn't uh, absolutely know the answer but talking about still being responsible like you said at this point people are still uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry says go out get fresh air Uh, you can take your dog for a walk you have to make sure you're distancing yourself from other people. Uh, Do -hmm. do you have to distance your dog from other people or other dogs?
6: That's a good question and um Right now, the science is a bit unclear, uh, and to what I highly suggest is err on the side of caution. Don't get, I mean, I've heard of, oh, I, I want to use other words, which I can on the radio, but it, let's say irresponsible behavior with people running up to people walking dogs and petting their dogs. I wouldn't do that. For one, you're getting close to the dog owner, and two, we don't know if people um, petting other people's dogs, if that if the germs and viruses, whatever, on top of the fur can be transmitted to people. We don't know that yet. But why take the chance? Why (laughs) take the chance? Just don't pet
1: another person's dog, period. All right. That's uh, good advice, especially in these uh, very strange times. We will leave it there. Rebecca Bretter, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. We have heard the message over and over. If you can stay home, stay home. If you are going out, as Dr. Bonnie Henry says, if you need to go for a little walk, absolutely, it is good for the mental health. Make sure you keep a good distance, that distance of two meters or about six feet from anyone around you, unless it is somebody you live with. People in the same family obviously are closer than that. But what do you do when you are trying to feed people who are some of the most vulnerable Vulnerable and who are used to being in pretty close quarters. Well, my next guest is with a Better Life Foundation, and Ash McLeod joins me to talk a little bit more about what that group is doing. Ash is on the line with us. Thank you so much for being here today.
7: Ah, uh, it's my pleasure. How are you?
1: Uh, very well. How about yourself?
7: I'm doing excellent. Holding in there.
1: <laughs> excellent. So we'll start off for people that aren't uh, familiar. What exactly does a Better Life Foundation do?
7: Uh, first and foremost, we feed people. And typically, if you ask this maybe two weeks ago, we would say we feed people and we convene community over food. Uh, obviously, given recent news, we've dropped the convening part of, uh, of that and are no longer um, getting people together as groups. Um, but uh, I would say today we are one of the largest independent food suppliers in the downtown side, providing over a thousand meals every day to local uh, SROs and community groups.
1: So you're physically in the community going out and meeting with people and, and supplying them with meals?
7: We're not meeting them. Um, we uh, uh, have our meals delivered to the SROs and uh, are bringing them right where people are and really trying to encourage self-isolation, but still providing wholesome, nutritious meals made with love.
1: Right. Uh, sorry, I meant before things changed. that no- on a yeah. normal day you guys would be interacting with, with people and, and giving them meals and maybe having a conversation, something like that. Uh,
7: absolutely. Multiple times a week we hold a community dinner here at Save On Meats, which we're headquartered out of, uh, and multiple times a week we would host dinners of 70 to 80 people where we would uh, get to know our neighbours and... and uh, and really connect with them and provide a positive social experience. We've just put a bit of a pause on the social experiences until we get through this.
1: Right. I understand, too, because some would understand that given the circumstances, uh, it would be understandable if you decreased the number of meals or c- couldn't provide that number. But I understand you've actually increased the number now.
7: Yeah, absolutely. Substantially. Not, uh, we, uh, not only have we increased the number, but we've increased uh, the size of the meals. Uh, and each week since we've started this we've hit new milestones and uh Just as of today, we are uh, delivering just under fifteen hundred meals uh this time last week, we were at a thousand
1: hmm and so how are you doing that, and how are you able to prepare and get the food and and keep that going while still maintaining distance and doing what the health officials are telling us
7: with 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 a major concentration uh, on, on, on safety and a lot of attention to detail uh, and, and logistics. Uh, we're, we're lucky that we have such ample space here at Save All Meats, and our production kitchen uh, gives us enough room to observe those safety, safety standards and give our cooks our distance. Um, where a lot of other restaurants have seen uh, massive layoffs and, uh, of their entire staffs, we've uh, been able to repurpose uh, some of our staff and have them helping out in production where before they may have been the front of house or, or in another position. It's all hands on deck and we're spread out across the restaurant and across the kitchen, um, making sure those meals go out every day.
1: And they go out now individually packaged and are delivered in a way so then people can pick them up and still be safe.
7: That's absolutely right. Uh, again, a couple of weeks ago, Uh, To encourage people eating together, we delivered these meals family-style so that folks could get to know each other in the SROs that we're delivering these to and see each other and have some of that positive human interaction that often happens over food. Uh, But just last week, we made the pivot into individualized meals. So where the week before, we were doing 30 to 40 really large format pans, hotel pans, we switched to um over 2000 individual containers virtually overnight so it took a lot of portioning um and and packaging labor uh and and now of course we're uh up to basically 3000 containers each each day so, and not only are uh, these meals delivered individually when they get there the management and staff at the SROs and hotels are able to distribute them to people in a reasonable and safe manner.
1: Nice. Uh, where do you get all the food? We get the food.
7: Um, normally, we buy it all from regular suppliers. Um, and uh, uh, But in the last week or so, we've had a lot of other friends in the restaurant industry reach out saying, we've got this, it's going to go bad, can you use it? And the answer has been uh, pretty much yes for anything that could be useful and helps get people fed. So we've been able to recover a ton of food that was otherwise going to be going to waste sitting in walk-ins all across the city.
1: Hmm, that's uh, that's great, because it, especially at this time when you're saying the need is increasing so much, uh, what a great thing to do rather than see that food be thrown away.
7: A hundred percent, right? And And a lot of other food points uh, that were available to this neighbourhood in the downtown east side are no longer operating for, for safety reasons. So food that was accessible a couple of weeks ago to folks living down here just isn't. So these meals become even more and more critical each day as options become less and less.
1: Absolutely. Uh, any concerns that if uh, the restrictions are increased or if things change uh, as we deal with uh, this unprecedented situation, do you, are there any concerns uh, with your continuing uh, the program that you do?
7: Like everybody, you know, we've got all kinds of concerns. Of course, for concerns for our staff, uh, concerns for the friends and family that we go home to. Uh, and, of course, a ton of concern for the people that we're serving. Um, but this is an essential service. We are uh, for, as of today, 1,500 people, their only source of food that they have available. Uh, and we believe that we will uh, continue to, to, to deliver those meals as, as, as long as we have the energy and the health and the ability to do so. And I foresee that happening for a very long time.
1: All right. And uh, it's great news. Anything else? Do you need anything from the public as far as awareness or anything, any message or anything that you would like to get out?
7: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, a lot of our uh, funds were created through uh, fundraising events. We do uh, two to three a week uh, where they help really support these meals. And we've canceled all of our events for, of course, the entirety of March Um, And it's looking like April uh, and and probably beyond are going to also have to be wrapped. So our source of funding for that uh, aspect has been completely dried up. So um, any donations that can be made to our website at BetterLifeFoundation.ca is is greatly appreciated, 100% tax receivable um, and helps us. Uh, support ourselves financially through
1: this. All right. Sounds great. Ash, thanks so much for taking a break to chat with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks.
7: I'm going to get back at it.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Uh, Claire Allen, CKNW contributor, reached out to Carla Laird with the Better Business Bureau, and she was talking about what the BBB has been hearing from their members about the impact of COVID-19 and how it's really affecting small business.
8: Over the last several weeks prior to, you know, things getting extremely critical at this point, we've been communicating with the businesses just to kind of get a sense of where they are, what's their plan, um, the plan that they've been implementing and, you know, how they've been handling this situation. And it's mixed reviews. There's some businesses that have had to, you know, close their doors temporarily. There's some businesses that have had to cancel um, upcoming um, events or um appointments that they've scheduled, there's some of the businesses that have completely had to close their doors um, because of the fact that they can't um, come up with a remote working solution based on the kind of industry that they're in so for instance the the trades businesses in spe- um in particular so the plumbers the electricians there's really no work from home i um you know model in in, in place for that kind of industry and so it does impact impact them significantly and then there are also businesses like um your cosmetologists your dentists your salons these are businesses that are, are very people um, interactive um, people facing and so because of that they also can't operate under these circumstances and then there are those businesses that are generally um, office based and now because of the situation they now have to take into, the, into consideration remote access and remote working um, solutions and so this is a lot of them doing this for the very first time. It hasn't been a smooth process for all of them and so you know it's almost like a day-by-day, step-by-step process to see
1: how they can survive this um, this economical impact that has resulted from the pandemic. As we wait for both the federal and provincial governments to implement the help for small businesses, the Better Bus- Business Bureau also says there are some things consumers can do to help keep those businesses afloat. One of the simple things you
8: can do is, for instance, shop online and shop locally online. So if your favorite um, stores in BC have a marketplace online, support them that way. Go on their website, see how you can... Um, utilize a service if it 's a case where you can order takeout and have the food delivered to you um, that 's one way you can support the restaurant industry that has definitely had to close their their dining sections for the last several days and weeks um, because of what is happening if it 's a case where you can utilize a, a teaching service so for instance, a lot of our um, prof- professional and training development businesses so your gym instructor, your personal trainer, your yoga fitness class teacher, you know, these these different entrepreneurs may have um, online-based classes available where you can still support them, sign in from the comfort of your home, and do exercises and still support that business. If it's a case where you are considering to, or at least you were considering to do a home renovation this year, don't give up on that plan, you know, find out how the business can still be supported and how you can still go about actualizing those blueprints that you've been thinking about. So, you know, it can, it can mean going to BBB.org, requesting a quote from a business and, you know, having discussions about how you can forward plan to have that project done. If it's the case where you've already spent money, you know, you don't, you may not need to even get a refund. So, yes, you may have rented a space, you may have. Purchase tickets for an event, you may have um, purchased products or services that you're not able to utilize because of the pandemic, and the instinctive thing is possibly to get a refund. But just think about the fact that if you as a consumer, your neighbor as a consumer, and all the other people in your community as consumers decide to get refunds from that business, that could be catastrophic because that's a lot of money going out and no cash flows coming in for that business. And so one way you can support that business and help to keep them alive is to just take a rain check. You know, reach Reschedule that event. Reschedule that booking. See how further down you can push down utilizing that product or that service that you had ordered. And so that way you can help to keep the business alive. And if the business is one that offers gift cards or gift certificates that you can utilize, you may have a friend whose birthday is coming up, or they may offer a service that you yourself actively utilizes. Give you know, give them a call or check them out online to see how you can still support them by purchasing a gift card. Because for that business, that's money coming in that can help to keep the lights on, help to pay the staff, help to pay the
1: lease, and you know, to help to keep that business alive during this time. But what if you are somebody who has been laid off or you yourself are a business owner impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? You can still support small businesses, says Laird, without spending any money. There's simple things that you can do to keep
8: a business alive. And that can be as simple as going online right now, since many of us are now working remotely from home. You know, you can go online. And leave a review about your favorite local business. You know, you may have had a good business experience in the past. Now is a good time to let others know what it was like. What was good about this business? How were they serving you? How did they serve others? How do you, what was the ambiance? What was the atmosphere when you were there? How were they helpful to you? These things are critical because it shows the business that, you know, you're supporting them and that it also endorses them and other people in your network will see this business and possibly consider them for future products and services. So if you want to write a review, you go online, you could go to bbb.org, search for that business and leave a review there. And if you're big on using social media, now is the best time to go on that platform Whatever your favorite platform is, find the business that you're interested in sharing with others and like and share their posts, share their um, business profile with someone you know in your network. And that way it helps to introduce this business to a broader network of potential consumers so that when things are up and running again, they have you know been able to gain some exposure in this downtime. And when things are up again, cash flow is moving a little more um, you know, steady businesses can get um, support from new consumers. And, you know, if there's a business down the street that you know of, that, that you've supported over the years, you know, maintain that customer loyalty, but also give them a boost of you know morale to let them know that you you care about them. Give them a call, let them know you're supporting them, and that's also a great opportunity for you to find out how you can support that business. So, if it's a case where we they have a system in place that you can provide support that we have not been able to mention, you know, you'd be able to get one-on-one direct feedback from that business to show your support.
1: Now, some businesses might not be able to recover because of the impact on the economy. For consumers who are able to support financially, the Better Business Bureau is suggesting it's wise to use a credit card when making payments so you do have some recourse if the business shuts down permanently. You can learn more at bbb.org forward slash coronavirus.